The situation now is even worse. Flood is not above the poverty line. Lovely. Do you want to kick us off, Joe? I reckon Joe should kick us off. Okay. Um, well, joining us on the show today uh, is Ben. Sorry, Ben, what is your last name, if you want to say? Uh, ben Peterson, an exile Australian, now in New Zealand. Great. And what are you doing over there in, in Zid? Uh, I work for a trade union, so I work for First Union, which is the finance industry retail stores and transport union, and I'm the convener of Unions Wellington, which is like the trades and labour councils in uh, Australia, except without any of the money um, or resources or um, support. Okay, cool. <laughs> well, um, we wanted to have Ben on the show today, um, basically just to have a talk about New Zealand. Um, which, as we were kind of talking before we started recording, we were saying how no one in Australia really thinks very much about New Zealand in general. Uh, but I think that might be changing a little bit, particularly among lefties, because of the Jacinda Ardern government and some of the things they have been able to do, but then also some of the like more questionable things about what they're doing, um, which we wanted to talk with Ben about, particularly in the industrial relations space. And yeah, just get a, a general sense for what's going on across the ditch. So um, Ben, yeah, I think to start off with, the first thing we wanted to ask you about was what's going on with the um, industrial relations stuff in New Zealand. Like there's some good stuff and then some bad stuff and some more good stuff. So talk us through the situation at the moment. Um, yeah, so it's it's been a really weird couple of weeks. Um, so in New Zealand, we've got a um, Labor government under Jacinda Ardern, uh, who people will have probably seen because she's sort of become the um, the poster child or the darling of, of um, I suppose, liberal sort of new social democratic politics. Um, and yeah, the, the, it's been a really interesting couple of weeks because in the last sort of month, we've had some really big announcements um, that really affect the trade union movement. Um, in the positive sense, we've had some um, announcements of what's going to be called fair pay agreements, and it's going to be this huge expansion of, of union power and the capacity to um, organise and negotiate for industry-wide um, standards and, and agreements, which will be really interesting and, and um, a real opportunity. Um, but in the same week of announcing this sort of huge expansion of, of union potential power, um, they also announced a, a pay freeze for public sector workers, um, which would limit nurses and teachers um, to, um, well, by their policy, getting no increases at all for the next three years. So it's been a really strange week in that industrial sort of workers space because it seems to be... Um, unsure whether the government's the uh, the best friend of the workers or, or declaring war on them um, at the same time. Yeah, so talk us through the um, industry-wide bargaining uh, thing. Like, what does that actually mean and why would it be such a huge step forward for for unions in New Zealand? Also, I guess I'd, I'd also like to know what you're kind of coming from, I guess. So, like, I, I know in Australia we're very used to, like, this enterprise bargaining model brought in by, by the Labor governments in the 90s where it's, you know, in an individual workplace, it, what's it like now? And I guess what's the what what would this change kind of be? Yeah, so New Zealand had like a um, a real rough time in the nineties. So it went from a very regulated um, old school, like in the mid eighties, New Zealand had compulsory unionism, where you had to be a, a union member, um, and a very regulated labour market, um, and then. Unlike in Australia where there was wage and incomes accords and this sort of process of neoliberalism, um, neoliberalism came hard uh, for workers in New Zealand in the 90s. So in, in 91, there was the um, Employment Contracts Act, uh, which basically resolved, it removed any legal um, framework for unions at all. Um, everyone was reduced to individual contracts, kind of like what Work Choices was Australia in Australia a few years ago. Um, and that, that just drop wages just fell off a cliff and um yeah in the 90s it, it really decimated um new zealand you know working class life um and there was a range of other sort of uh, privatizations and things running parallel to that um and so that was the sort of the 90s that that decimated um unions and, and workers um and then that was replaced in the early 2000s by what we have now which is called the um employment relations act which allowed for a system similar to australia of um employment uh, or enterprise agreements um he would call them collective agreements which would be um based around a um 
either an individual workplace or a collection of workplaces with an individual employer, um, which is an improvement from the sort of Wild West individual contract sort of um, system, but has, has remained a lot of issues for, for working people um, on that sort of industry-wide scale. Um, so uh, for me, I work mostly with supermarket workers, and we've got a, a huge variation in the supermarket space where we have some sites where we have built up strong or protected or rebuilt strong unions and we're able to get um, conditions that are improved and, and better than, than legal minimums. Um, but there remains a lot of other um, employers that are really hostile um, and actively keep out unions um, that are proving really difficult. Um, and those other places then undercut um, where there are conditions that are that are um, kept alive. Um, and it's made, there's been no mechanism um, apart from sort of going worksite by worksite and store by store um, for workers to try and build up industry standards. Um, yeah, so it's sort of similar to Australia in, in that sort of way at the moment, but without an award system um, at all. So there's no, there's nothing else other than the, the legal minimums and, and your option to join a union and, and try and fight your way up. Um, yeah, what would change would be moving to a system where we can um, have some level of industry-wide negotiation, so where we have um, good conditions in, in pockets of it or where unions have sort of carved out um, some strength, um, having a mechanism to be able to extend that to the whole industry so that workers aren't being undercut um, by uh, dodgy employers or um, new, new people coming in or even things like Uber and um, some of that sort of stuff like that would give us a better avenue to, to having sort of, um, you know, ways to tackle the gig economy stuff potentially as well. And what would you say is like the sort of public feeling around this? Like, I, for instance, you were talking about work choices and I remember that being really the only time in my life that I can remember industrial relations legislation being like in the public consciousness in a way and people talking about unions and work, workplace rights and so forth. Um, yeah, what's the feeling on the ground with the industry-wide bargaining stuff? Um, I think I, I'm quite bullish about... Um, even in our current framework, things are improving. Like I think things are bottomed out and I think um, it's really interesting to me in the union sort of space, the, the sort of radicalisation that's still, I don't want to overblow things, um, but like there's this global changes in the air, you know. Um, so we see in the US it's sort of Bernie Sanders sort of style stuff in the DSA and, and in other places it might be um, Greens parties or, or whatever else. Um, and in New Zealand, there is that sort of slow and modest sort of building of expectations. Um, and so that's meant that we are seeing in New Zealand unions are growing again um, slowly. And it also means that we are seeing more industrial action. So in the last, since the Ardern government has come in over the last few years, there has been um, a modest but, but real increase in union membership and, and also in, in strike action. So we've seen um, in the last three or four years, like nurses, teachers, um, a lot of stuff in retail uh, that I work with, but uh, bus drivers, uh, even some industrial action in the airlines before COVID, um, we've seen this sort of building um, pressure, um, which I think gives us a really interesting and a good context to be having these conversations about the need of industrial action. So it's not coming from a position of um, weakness in a lot of ways or, or people that the unions are sort of beaten and, and looking for, for some sort of solution. Um, it is coming from a, a slow but real um, rebuilding of confidence and strength um, and people looking for how do we extend that and build that up? How do we take, you know, where we have one good conditions in some of the supermarkets or in some of the retail spaces, what are the tools we need to get that into more places? Um, or in the bus driving industry where it's going to be really important because um, the way contracting and privatisation has made it really fucking hard to... Um, to protect conditions, let alone extend them. Um, it gives us another tool to build on the industrial action that has been happening over the last few years, um, which is cool. Yeah, that's really interesting because when you were saying it's like it, it's coming from on the back of some momentum with, with change of rules, obviously, like one of the really big demands of the Australian Union movement was to kind of return to this like pattern bargaining or sector bargaining kind of thing, which seems like is, is mostly what's going on there. But it was obviously coming from a place of weakness. And I think like my read on it was that Australian unions think organising's too hard. And it's they were kind of hoping to return to some sort of like arbitration over the, over the biggest, like over the biggest sectors of the economy. Whereas, so that's not really what's happening here, you'd say? Oh, I, I, I think there's some people, like I, I quite 
personally i hate that like i think if the if workers are weak and can't win anything then why would they bother joining your union and getting involved in fighting for anything i think any union campaign that's going to win has to start from um the basis of like we do have collective power and we can win stuff and that's not predicated on um or we need to have a position of doing whatever it takes whatever tools we have um to to fight and to, to win um i think that the conversation that we we want to have um yeah can be around like this is we the tools aren't aren't going to work we will use these tools and we'll go side by side if we need to but that's going to take a long time and has a lot of risks and, and will lead to a lot of um you know problems along the way so the more tools we we can extend we can have to extend out to whole industries then we are in a position to to make dramatic increases really quickly um yeah i think there is a debate in the unions here i think some unions are um or some people within the union movement are more comfortable in a campaigning space that really presents the sort of the victims that need tending to um and but i i, I don't think that's very useful and, and i don't think that's a fair reflection actually of, of where we're at at the moment because at least in my experience as a union official like i feel confident going into a workplace or if there's a um a dispute or if we're trying to push for wages that if we are ambitious then workers will back us and are more likely to get involved if there are ambitious sort of goals and, and demands and things being put forward i don't get the sense we're in a thing where we need to to change ourselves and to scrape and bow and to um to try and present ourselves as, as victims that need need support like we can um present you know a confident sort of force of, of people that that just need the tools to to fix the situation what what do you reckon was the is is the impetus for for the Ardern government then like looking at these changes you know was it was it pressure from the union movement or you know why what, what why are they doing it? So a big part of it is pressure from the union movement. Um, so there's a couple of unions here that have been campaigning for these changes for a long time, particularly uh, Etu Union, um, who cover a range of, sort of this amalgamation union that covers a lot of different people from manufacturing to um, aviation to uh, cleaners and security guards. Uh, it's been a real pet project for them. Um, and they're a labour affiliated union. Um, and they've done a lot of internal lobbying and, and that's that's been a big part of, of their um, project. But I think the, the Adern government, um, it kind of happened by accident. Um, like anyone who sort of says that there was this sort of big strategic sort of 10-year plan um, is lying. Um, like the, the Labor was doing its worst polling ever. Um, Just to be clear, like you, you mean uh, the Adern government happened by accident as in they didn't expect to win at that time a few years ago? Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I remember watching the coverage as well, um, because it looked like they were going to lose. And I remember Jacinda Ardern just giving the speech that was totally a concession speech. And then the next day, they were like, "Oh, actually, we won." Yeah, like, like literally, Ardern became the like it was sort of the hail mary, sort of like you know, fuck it, let's give it a crack, sort of um, turn to Ardern because uh, the Labor Party had been polling. It's worst, you know, polling ever. Um, the National Party would have, had been in government for almost ten years. Looked very was was very cocky. Um, Ardern came in and created a bit of a media flurry, which improved the vote a little bit. But even on election night, like as you say, it seemed likely that the National Party would sort of get back in, and Ardern managed to sort of cobble together originally this quite um, unwieldy um, it was, sort of coalition. It was old mate um, Winston Peters, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 He's such a... So, as I was saying before we started recording, I grew up in New Zealand, um, which also I'd like to know it means I can do whatever uh, New Zealand accent I want on this show. I can say anything I want about New Zealanders. You can't get angry at me. Um, it's against the law. But, yeah, that me I, I remember Winston Peters as, like, a name I used to hear through my childhood in the 90s growing up in New Zealand. And then, like, here we are, like, 15 years later, and I was watching this coverage and they're like Winston Peters I was like what he's still around <laughs> and he became like the kingmaker um in that election oh yeah yeah and like Winston Peters he's an interesting sort of guy if you were trying to sum him up he was his party was New Zealand first he it was a very like personality driven party that was like the Winston Peters party he was very said all sorts of random shit there wasn't really any like particular um underpinning sort of like consistency um, but like 
he was quite a sort of a politician. He was sort of like rural white people liked Winston Peters because he was like Maori but would say racist things. So he was like this sort of opt-out card because it's not racist because Winston said it kind of vibe. So he's like a Bob Catter of New Zealand. That's the vibe I'm getting. Yeah, but if Bob Catter were Indigenous. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Bob Catter without the hat, but also like, yeah, Indigenous. Yeah, I interrupted you. But yeah, so they were not planning to win, but then they kind of fell um, into winning. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, as you were saying, that wasn't really part of their broad strategic plan. Yeah, and so now they're kind of, they were then trying to sort of figure out what to do, and and the, the the thing from the union movement that was sort of central was to get some industrial relation reform. Um, and yeah, they came in, uh, sort of fluked into part into government, and then started making quite ambitious um, goals around um, poverty alleviation and um, improving um, welfare um, in New Zealanders. Um, which has kind of locked them into doing something. Like New Zealand's a very low-wage economy. Um, it's something like one in six New Zealanders live in Australia because you, if it's particularly if you have a trade or skill, you just get paid between 10 and 40% more to move to Australia um, because the, economy, like the, the wage system has been so fucked for so long. Um, and so if they're going to tackle the stuff that they said they were going to around welfare, they need to do something around wages in the economy. Um, and this is what they've landed on to try and strengthen unions to, to do that. So were you also a, a union organiser in Australia? Uh, no, I was a uh, vaguely student, job-to-job, um, -job, I guess, precarious worker, millennial, not really doing much. And um, to be honest, I, I went to New Zealand on a holiday um, and thought, this is all right, um, fuck Australia, and I'm still here. Nice. Well, I was going to ask, which maybe you might still be able to give a bit of an answer about, but, you know, we spend a lot of time on this podcast just bemoaning how fucked Australian unions are and the, how the union movement is just, um, yeah, basically, like, crippled itself and refuses, as we were kind of talking about before, refuses to ask for more um, or to be ambitious in its demands or, alternatively, like, I feel is is kind of way too ambitious and kind of like throws around the idea that you know we're going to like change the entire entire industrial relations legislation framework while our union density is at like sixteen percent. Um, so I wonder if you saw much difference between I guess the general state of unionism in Australia versus New Zealand and what are those differences? Yeah, I think they're quite different. Um, I think New Zealand's much smaller, um, which does mean there's more, there's less uh, infrastructure or less institution um, and less, I guess, bureaucracy. Um, and I think that in a lot of ways actually is a, a positive because it's not sort of layers and layers of, of people. Um, it, it is a bit easier to make an impact and change things. I think in Australia, because the unions are so large, um, big ships take a, a long time to sort of move um, and it's harder to be nimble. Um, whereas in New Zealand, I think it, it is actually a little bit easier to um, be experimental in New Zealand because um, it doesn't take the same scale of, um, of resources to, to change things. Or, and even the employers, if you want to have a, a campaign against a, a major employer, it doesn't take dozens and dozens of organisers and, um, and resources to do it. You, you can sort of move, move quicker. Um, but yeah, in New Zealand as well, like there are, there's maybe a little bit of a stronger um, non-labour affiliated left of union sort of space, or like um, independent unionism. Um, like the un some there are still some labour affiliated unions, and there are a lot of even non-affiliated unions that then lean very heavily on the Labour Party. But there is, I think, a, a bit the there's a lot more space for a debate and discussion around um, unions campaigning politically independently or needing to do that not just purely through the Labor Party as the, the solution. Um, so I've never had issues in New Zealand um, as someone who's not a Labor Party member to, to be a Labor Party staff. Um, you mean to be a union staff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry, yeah, to be a union staff, um, right. you know, um, whereas that's not necessarily the case in, in Australia. Yeah, and, and I think in New Zealand it's um a little bit of a, like even Labor-affiliated unions, and at the moment under Ardern, the affiliated unions I think have a strong case because they have been able to get some reforms and, and, and positive steps out of uh, the Ardern government. Um, but there, there is a more 
organic sort of space for um yeah or, or more context of ideas i think than in australia i know there's a lot more in australia of that um focus on labor factionalism as the union's strategy actually um yeah i suppose i'm probably never going to work for an australian union after saying this on this podcast but um anyway, i'm <laughs> yeah. happy here so what does the new zealand labor party actually believe like because it kind of because part of that is the Australian Labor Party, as I understand it, being very internally disciplined and like um, maybe not so good at like winning elections, but in terms of like cracking down on like internal dissent and like maintaining a, a consistent narrative stuff. Um, and so maybe that makes it harder to like have an independent union. How does the and but like it kind of sounds like the New Zealand Labor Party just stumbled backwards into power. Um, and has just perhaps been making up this agenda as they go along. So what do you reckon they actually believe in? Like, how are they thinking and what are their plans? To be honest, I don't know. Um, I really, yeah, I, I think if you looked at the Labour Party 10 years ago, it was as neoliberal sort of centrist third way as any of the others, the UK Labour Party or Australia. Um and Jacinda Ardern sort of come in and her career was very, um, it was a it was a political career and she worked in Tony Blair's office and she um, had, um, yeah, this sort of very mainstream sort of um, road through. Um, but the, the, the party here somehow is, is sort of, and I think this is part of the thing of why it's been a little bit coherent, incoherent and, um, and this stuff of attacking the, simultaneously trying to extend union power and also have a wage freeze for the public service it's sort of groping towards trying to do something different and not being quite sure what that could be yeah that's what interests me right like so often with the kind of modern social democratic parties there's almost seems to be an Ill, an Ill, inability to even really articulate just any kind of coherent idea or even just like like the concept of a platform almost seems foreign to them. So like, like, yeah, like in this case, can you tell us a bit more about the wage freeze, which is like the other, like the dark side of this? And it seems like this really bizarre kind of, like surely if they are planning to empower unions, but also planning to freeze, to freeze wages, but then the empowered unions will try and fight the wage freeze. Like that seems very contradictory. Like why are they doing that what's that about yeah well and even that was kind of quite strange so that the, the the wage freeze that they have sort of proposed was um so for anyone over um sixty thousand uh, dollars annual salary uh the the default union uh, government position is there should be no pay increase for the next uh three years um and so on that sort of was wrapped up in two justifications one was a very uh, neoliberal sort of austerity politics, need to tighten belts, COVID's made the economy very hard, so we need to be not getting um, carried away and, and, and having sort of wage explosions and, and um, balance the books kind of thing. Um, but then also this weird take of like, but we also need to reduce inequality and um, talking about sort of um, upper echelon public servants on, you know, six-figure salaries and, and stuff. Um, but it, it made for quite a coherent sort of, incoherent sort of speech because if you were trying to reduce or like, you know, reduce inequality within the public service and, and sort of wheel in this sort of very high-end sort of CEO um, of public institutions sort of um, pay, it seems a strange thing to then like, in effect, line up against like nurses and teachers. Um and other sort of low-level public servants or, or people working in the MIQ hotel or the, the quarantine hotels and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, yeah, it, it seemed like a it was sort of a weird announcement that, that cut against, oh, yeah, so much that, yeah, it was sort of this weird reversion to austerity sort of economics, but then also wanting to do this sort of Robin Hood style sort of thing and, and saying they were going to give some pay increases at the very low end of the pay scale. It was, it was quite incoherent. Um, which sort of reflects this sort of making it up as they go along kind of politics. Because this whole, that whole idea of like the fat cap public servants on like the six figure salaries who are sponging off the public dime, that seems like an idea that was very current in like 1995. And it always seems like these people are somehow just like running a campaign that they would have run in like the 90s when like that 
might have been a much more powerful figure in the public imagination than it now is, targeting like the crooked public servants as like the big the big villain. But yeah, how they like what's the process by which they're still pulling this stuff out today when I think people are much more sympathetic to public servants? I don't know. Well, especially post-COVID, because we've just had like a whole year of being like, oh, public servants are keeping us all safe. They're the people in the MIQ hotels and doing the immigration and blah, 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 teaching kids from home through over, you know, the COVID lockdowns and blah, blah, blah. Aren't everyone a national hero? Thank you so much. Um, but also pay freeze for, it's very bizarre. How's it gone down? Is like Has there been pretty pretty aggressive kind of statements from the, like, the public service unions? And are the public service unions affiliated as well? No, so none of the public service unions are affiliated to the Labor Party. Um, so there's a very strong sort of um, tradition of, of public service or like any unions that are government aligned or, or in the public service, so nurses and teachers and um, the Public Service Association don't affiliate to political parties. Um, and that can be for right-wing reasons as well. Like that's not always a, a great position, but it does mean they've got independence. So they universally have just... Um, been outraged and been like well fuck this and it's um so that's been really positive and there's been a partial back down where the government sort of tried to uh wheel back and say oh well we'll we'll figure this out in the bargaining table um this is just our starting position maybe things will sort of change but then also maybe not um and there's been nothing that's um come out in the budget that seems to indicate um otherwise but um yeah, the unions, it's it's the unions in the last couple of years, like I say, have been more militant and more willing to take strike action um, and it's been successful. So it's just going to, I think, um, there seems to be a pretty confident sort of thing that it just means that people, nurses and teachers and public servants are gearing up to take the industrial action they need, um, which will be good. And that'll just build, again, more union power. It's been really interesting the last couple of years and this sort of modest but real resurgence of, of unions of um, taking some industrial action and getting a better result out of doing that and then the next group that comes up says well fuck if it's good enough for the nurses then um, we'll have a crack too and lo and behold if you take some action you get a better result and the next people that come up then you know follow the leader um, so um, on a purely uh, like I don't yeah I don't think the Labor Party here thinks enough ahead to have this Machiavellian plan of like making unions like strike to get stronger, so that will strengthen the left. But um, in my view, it seems to be the the dynamic that's playing out. Yeah, and I'm interested to know, like, given that the Ajayan government, I think, is generally seen as a pretty popular progressive government. Like, you know, we've talked a bit about like the limits of of their social democratic agenda and how they're you know often incoherent in their approach, but from where we are um, in Australia, like it certainly seems like they're pretty popular um, left-wing government, one of the, certainly one of the success stories, quote unquote, in the West in recent years. So wanted to talk about like where that leaves the left in general, particularly um, organisations and parties to the left of Labor, like the New Zealand Greens. Um, do they find themselves kind of outflanked by Labor? Or like what are the, what's the role then of the kind of, yeah, those left of Labor parties? Yeah, well, I think the weird thing, despite the sort of strike rate wave and stuff, um, Labor's remained really popular um, with the left and with, with working people and are probably as popular now, or the, the latest polls show they've been as popular now as any point that they've been um, in government. Um, and I, I think because it, it appears quite responsive, um, I think for the left that the the Labor Party, um, if you do go out and organise something, um, so whether that's through the unions going on strike or there's been some um, really important Māori land struggles um, in Auckland and, and places, if you go and organise a serious campaign um, and fight about it for long enough, then you will get results out of this government. They will kind of concede. Um, so in some ways for, like, the Greens, um, then there hasn't been... Um, and the Greens have sort of taken positions to champion those and, and gained a little bit, but there hasn't come a there hasn't been anything where the government's tried to stand down or like stare down a, a movement and, and say no. Um, and because it's sort of responsive, it, it, in some ways it's almost built Jacinda's brand um, sort of even higher because she's sort of the, the person who will listen and, and, and will hear you out. So you, you get ministers of education that are broadly popular with teachers despite teachers taking, you know, industrial action they haven't had to do for decades to get a better pay deal um 
but they're still coming broadly um, seen as, as quite positive and responsive to that pressure, which is kind of um, bizarre and you wouldn't sort of expect it to be the case. But um, but it's good. I think it's sort of building or the, the unions, as long as people continue to sort of build that pressure up um, and win things, then it, it, um, it builds a positive reflex amongst um, working people. But... Yeah, I, I don't know. At some point, the, the sheen will have to come off, or at some point, the Labor Party will will pick an issue, or the, or the movements will get too far that they'll um they'll have to sort of try and wheel something in, and maybe this pay free stuff might be it. But um, but even if they do, like the way that that sort of confidence seems to be growing, um, it certainly will be a, a hell of a, a um collision when it does come up. Yeah, the thing it actually reminds me of as you were speaking, um, is uh the Evo Morales government in in Bolivia, um. RIP, our boy ever. Well, you know, he's not dead, but <laughs> exiled. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the he's model... Back. He's that... back in the country. Oh, is he? Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Great. Um, but I think, yeah, his the model of electoral politics advanced by the mass in Bolivia was really quite interesting in that it took that kind of direct negotiating role where the, the role of the state was to negotiate with these trade unions and social movements. And it was kind of understood by all parties that when people wanted something, they would go on strike for like a number of days or weeks, or they would, um, when I was in Bolivia in 2015, um, people were blocking a highway uh, for a week or so because they wanted some infrastructure in, in their, um, in Potosí, um, a former silver mining region of the country that's um, historically been a bit underserviced. So they wanted a new airport and a hospital. And um, and then, you know, they went to the to the negotiating table with government and, and they got what they wanted in the end. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting model. I'd be, I think, as far as far as I know, this is like the first. This is the only example I can think of in recent years where this has happened in the West. But it certainly is one way of you know, continuing to build the power of social movements and to uh, enhance you know their their role um, even while there's a kind of you know electoral politics angle or you know the state remains very much um, in its in its current form. I, I just um, love the concept of Jacinda Ardern being the like liberal Eva Morales. Yeah, there's obviously a lot of parts, you know, problems with that analogy, but yeah, just in terms of that that negotiating relationship is what it reminded me of. It's important to understand that uh, historically New Zealand is part of Latin America. If you look at oh, yeah. that, people don't quite make that connection. Um, but yeah, also like. I think it's very funny that all Jacinda Ardern had to do to be like the shining light of global social democracy was just get out of the fucking way and just like not be this iron wall in the way of any possible scrap of progress. Which like if you look at the Labour parties like um, thinking like UK Labour or like Labour here where they very deliberately like said no we're not going to back down for any of this and like we're going to adopt this we're going to very consciously adopt this plan of like standing in the way of all this stuff because we feel that we have to repudiate the unions in order to get ahead. Um, and they just like gotten fucking smashed and been completely destroyed. Whereas all Adern like had to do was just not do that. And like it didn't even, wasn't even a plan. It's not like this was this master strategy she had. She was just like, just like not kind of set on this insane agenda and like when someone was just like well we want this she was like oh, okay i guess and then just kind of fell backwards into like yeah well i can see like it is interesting that that she or the government is, is taking the role that kind of a lot of uh governments just want to avoid which is the role of having to give things uh like you know i can see like the, Queen, the Queensland Labor government here, for instance, would has, as far as I know, hardly ever given into the demands of any type of broad-based social movement or, or trade union demand. And I would say, like, the reasoning is, well, you know, if you give in once, then people think they can just ask for all kinds of things. And then, like, your power um, as the state is undercut by these, you know, movements among the general populace. And then, you, like, you know, you lose your, um, your status as, like, supreme ruler. Um, which is kind of like a, I don't know, betrays an interesting type of anti-democratic thinking for sure. Yeah, and I, I do want to say like the Labor, it's not all, like they have been modest, like everything, it's not that they've um, conceded on anything at all, like just fully enacted sort of movement things and they are sort of slow, but it is interesting that they don't, yeah, they haven't tried to t turn on the movement or, or done that, yeah, that Labor Party sort of thing that 
I associated when I was in Oz or, or even looking around the world, that historic sort of thing of the um, Labour Party trying to sort of get in the way of, um, or like, you know, face down to show to capital that they're strong enough to be serious and and, um, and to sort of bring structural reform. It's, it's this sort of weird, um, yeah, half measure um, of everything. And, and I think that's that's part of the problem with it, with the Labour Party as well, because they don't, I don't think they really believe in much because they're sort of just this ad hoc sort of, you know, sometimes neoliberal sort of, you know, consensus stuff, sometimes things quite tied outside of that, um, usually never quite fall in any direction and, and sort of just sort of middling through in this way that seems exciting and novel because we're so used to this neoliberal um, straitjacket sort of politics and economy. Um, but, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. With this sort of, like, government that, that does seem willing to kind of concede to some demands, even if it's not enthusiastically, and I guess also the, the kind of dynamic of, like, some Labour-affiliated, some non-Labour-affiliated unions, but then obviously lots of, like, non, non-union kind of, like, the non-union left and the non-union kind of social movements and stuff. Like, what what are you seeing as, like like, strategies or tactics that are kind of emerging in this context that are that are bringing kind of history forward in a good way or and like what sorts of like demands do you think are going to be important in New Zealand politics over the next little while to to really kind of like build power for the working class I I think the the Labour Party is really they've come in and they made it the thing that they wanted to decrease poverty and inequality and welfare Um, and then the the problem for them is that the neoliberal economy didn't just sort of wake up and say, oh, the political leadership wants us to not fuck over working people. Um, it's continued on. So housing is, is fucked in New Zealand. Um, renting is, is fucked. Um, housing costs are going through the roof. Um, wages are still really fucked. Um, and so anything I think that can go around or, or find, I think that the problem is the finding ways or there's not a left that's used to to fighting and th- um, and winning stuff, um, so it's a bit unclear. There's there's a real dearth of people that that know how to organise, and I think the only way to to get around that is to to do more stuff and to train more people up. So I think there's really exciting things coming out of that. These strikes that happened just popularises the idea and gets people more comfortable with organising and trying to do that in their own workplaces, even if they're not directly involved in it. Um, or the um, the land occupation in Ihamato and in Auckland, which was a, there was going to be a housing development on this um, really important um, historical land to the um, indigenous owners um, or the the, the mana whenua um, of the the area um, where they they occupied the land um, to prevent that housing development going ahead, and um, they've been successful in in winning this sort of it's going to be transferred to this sort of trust to to protect the land. Um, I think the more that sort of happened and the more people who, like that occupation had thousands of people come down and, and participate in the, the the occupation. And if only just a handful of those sort of take that, that confidence and the tactics of seeing that when you organise and you, you build that community and, and um, pick a demand and stick to it and, and, and stand up that you can win, then that um, will give us the, the capacity to to fight for more. Um, at the moment, if you know, in New Zealand, I think there is a little bit of um, a, a, an extra political party left um that's we're, we're quite competent online but less in terms of going out and organizing the rally or occupying something or um unheard of <laughs> yeah, yeah i know it'll, it'll be a shocking to, to say that there's a uh, an online left that's maybe not as well versed in organizing as they'd like to think they are um but if we can get off that and move that energy into the real world then yeah there's heaps that could be done oh hold on hang on are you that's it that you're saying that people have to log off? I think that's a very questionable proposition. I would never suggest on a podcast that people oh, should be less online. Yeah. I was Here's my question. Um, is there like a New Zealand equivalent of like the people on Twitter who love Dan Andrews? Like, is there like a, like a drip Twitter, but for Jacinda Ardern? Like, what are the really, because there's got to be people, right, who are like, uh, like, centrist libs who are really fanatically pro Arden and to like think that she like completely buy into this like she's the shining beacon of social democracy self what are what are those people like and is that inflected with horniness the way the dance stands are um <laughs> the 
the big yeah. questions here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, is there's definitely the Jacinda Ardern sort of fan club. Um, the people who are most enthusiastic about Jacinda Ardern though will talk the least about what the government's actually done. So it gets reduced to like, isn't she great? At during COVID, she was on the television every day and she told us to be kind and told us how many new cases there were and wasn't that fantastic. And she's a woman and she's a mum. Oh, hard. It's like, you know, feminism, uh, you know, the uh, historical oppression of women has been um, resolved because there's a woman on telly telling us to be kind. Um, it's just like, you know, it's, not like she's, it's not like she's New Zealand's first female prime minister. I mean, she's a third, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I, yeah, it's it's the, the, the Adern sort of fandom is is bizarre and, like, yeah, it's just this totally illogical sort of thing. And, and then, yeah, any well, – because it's not tethered to what she's done, so, like, any critique of her of, of things that haven't been done or that things haven't gone far enough are then untethered to reality as well, you know, or, or like, seen, have to be. Like, it all gets sort of – viewed into this purely sort of like uh celebrity politics of like isn't just Cinder Ardern great yeah and she was um she was on the cover of Vogue if I remember correctly like I think in her first year or first two years of, of being prime minister um I think there's a strong overlap between like what a drop twitter people and people who love Jacinda like I often see her name mentioned by you know Dan Stans and people who have sewer rat in their twitter name and and you know that uh that milieu. <laughs> is it the same sort of social base that makes up the real, like, the fans? Because I, I notice in Australia, at least, the like, the really strong fans of the Labour Party tend to be Gen X or Boomer who've got, you know, they own their own home, they've got relatively secure, relatively well-paid jobs um, in, like, traditional traditionalised, unionised industries like the public service and, like, comfortable super at, like, middle suburb kind of folks so this is who i'm kind of picturing when i think of like the like the social base of the like and the fans of like the australian labor party is it is that who's like loves jacinda or is it other people yeah kind of new zealand's got this weird there's this weird um hegemonic nationalism of new zealand where it's like we're good people and we are the good people in the world and so if jacinda ardern is like if people are noticing us then we are being good and Jacinda Ardern is getting people to notice New Zealand so she must be good and she's telling the whole world to be kind and isn't that nice. Like I think the, yeah, and and she sort of keeps people in a sense like, yeah, lulls into that sort of sense of, um, yeah, New Zealanders just deeply want to be good and told that they're being good little children. Um, Yeah, it really struck me like when I, moved here so yeah I grew up in New Zealand and moved here when I was a teenager and like one yeah I did really notice what you said before about hegemonic nationalism is so true like New Zealanders really want everyone to like notice and uh you know praise them and they like love the idea of getting international recognition and being like a real country um which is obviously just a kind of like defensive overreaction to the fact that they're a tiny country um, tucked away at the bottom of the world and often no one really thinks about them or remembers them and then when I moved here to Australia I was like oh no one has that anxiety here because we're like yeah I mean Australia is still obviously in many ways like a peripheral country but we are wealthy large um, a major like first world player in economic and political spaces and like just that sort of yeah, like a uh, very kind of anxious need for praise and recognition just doesn't exist the way here the way it does in New Zealand. I just like, I think kind of yes and no, because I think that Australia's like there is the, the cultural cringe is very real. I think it's like kind of different sectors of society. There's definitely like like Australian like uh, universities and like arts people are desperate to prove that they're as good as like the real countries. There's I guess in Australia, maybe it's more divided where there's like a um one kind of section of society where their like national was just more like oh get a get on your mate like very proud to just be a good aussie bloke and then there's the like the other section of society which is really like anxious about that and kind of wants to prove that they're um like not all descended from convicts but also kind of wants to take pride in like that aspect of Australian culture while simultaneously being like, no, 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 we, we're intellectuals kind of thing. 
I think the 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 Australians who moved to Melbourne because they think that's where you can live your like truer self are the Australians who deep down want to go to Europe and don't think Australia is worth much. Yeah, I think... Astra- Brisbaneites are the only people with self confidence in this entire country. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, there's a big thing in New Zealand of moving to Oz as well. Like it's sort of this this small. I think because like a lot of people move to Oz as well, so a lot of people who are in some ways sort of like ambitious or or stuff like often get out. And so it's sort of left with this sort of like, it's all okay here. Um, anyone's paying attention. Look, this is great. Um, yeah. And then, I don't know, there's something like, I think Australia, the whole like Afghanistan sort of thing, like Australian nationalism, sort of like we are the best at doing war crimes is sort of quite different to New Zealand. New Zealand would, um, yeah, still participates in the sort of imperialist machine in a much more modest sort of way, but like likes to perceive of itself as being somehow independent or more like um pc or something well it's always been much more independent in like in in regard to like the anzus treaty and stuff like it was like pretty quick to put up its hands and be like look we we actually don't want any like american nuclear powered like ships or submarines coming into our waters and things like that and australia would is just you know consistently rolls out the red carpet anyone would kind of think that australia was the the population of two or three million without like heaps of resources that that the Imperial Corps really wanted and and therefore have the strength to say no to things, but it's definitely not like that. Um, what's the New Zealand right like? Especially, like, given that the the Nationals, um, like, as far as I know, got completely destroyed in the last election. So what are, like, what's the right thinking now? And just, like, what are they like? Are they... Because, like, the Australian right, I think, is even, like, on an international scale kind of famously just insane um and does this always has this thing of like trying to impress like the right in every other country by like going further than them and then every like uh like every conservative from any other every other country like once they're done and washed up and like even like their own people don't want them they end up in australia doing a lecture tour um what's the key what's the new zealand right like um they're they're pretty cooked at the moment like like didn't you so one of the things that in new zealand is there's this huge um like tendency of like new zealanders towards the status quo um so it makes it quite hard to be an opposition party and that especially like we were saying before there was an unexpected sort of change in government so there's this sort of born to rule party of the national party um that have been in government for 10 years that expected to be there for a long time all of a sudden wasn't and then they sort of also lost that sense of being like we're the natural party of government because they're not in government and they're kind of turning on themselves so they they until a few years ago were quite liberal in terms of right-wing party um on social issues and, and stuff like that um but now they're kind of lurching and trying to reinvent themselves so there is all of a sudden this very proactive sort of trumpist christian right sort of element um that they're sort of leaning into but every time they lean into that then it sort of alienates the sort of um i suppose like straight business sort of malcolm turnbull type sort of people um the other thing we we have a um there's sort of two parties of the right in parliament. There's the, the National Party, which is the traditional born-to-rule party, but there's also the the ACT Party, which is the um, ACT originally stood for the Association of Citizens and Taxpayers, I think, and it's a, a libertarian party, but also a um, sort of coup conspiracy sort of nutter party who are convinced that, Julie, uh, that Jacinda Ardern is... Um, trying to roll out uh, socialism in New Zealand and she's a plant from the um, Chinese Communist Party and um, and they're kind of absorbing... What is their status on vaccines, COVID vaccines specifically? Well, they, specifically they like freedom a lot and you can interpret that however you'd like. Got it, okay. <laughs> yeah, so they're all about freedom. Well, they, they said they've just done a free speech tour up and down the country. Well, they've been in, in 15 Kings. cities and Love towns. Love that combination of words, free speech tour. Oh, Actually, that should be the title of this show. <laughs> well, yeah, so they've done a free speech tour, but then yesterday didn't vote for a motion in Parliament um, to recognise the state of Palestine purely because a Green MP had put out a tweet that was offensive to um, the Israelis and, and had done the wrong free speech, so they weren't going to vote for a motion on the basis <laughs> of, you know. Awesome. Um, I'm absolutely stunned to hear that there's people on the right using free speech in some sort of, like, contingent way that suits them. Well, Ardern was, like, the 
president of the International Congress of Socialist Youth, right? Or something like that. Yeah. Which I, if I was a if I was concerned about the influence of the Chinese Communist Party, um, I would be able to uh, infer a lot from the title of that organization. And they do, and they do. And there's like one video of Jacinda Ardern using the word, um, she's doing a speech at this youth, the, the Social Democratic Youth International Conference thing, and she uses the word comrade like 15 times in this five-minute speech. And I think it's the only time I've ever heard her say or use the word comrade, but they lose their fucking nut over this video of like a maybe 20-year-old Jacinda Ardern um, calling some, you know, uh, Romanian Social Democrats comrades and thanking them for their hospitality. Jacinda Ardern's had this wild life. Like, I, I didn't know any of this. So like, But, you know, going from like a, like a socialist 20-year-old to working for Blair and now apparently ushering in socialism in New Zealand. I, I'm delighted for her. And she's a mum. Yeah, honestly, hats off her for the mum thing. I've got a three-year-old as well and like, you know, running a government, you know, uh, running a global uh, communist conspiracy to defraud white people of their freedom um, and be a mother at the same time must be quite a task. Girl boss, girl boss hours. <laughs> yeah. So to um, bring this back around to the unions a little bit, so I've kind of talked about like, um, you know, given that the political situation is what it is, um, and it kind of sounds, well, it kind of sounds like, regardless of the Labour Party um, being kind of all over the place and incoherent, um, it feels seems like they're not really under a lot of threat uh, from the right, and they're probably not going to, like, the shine will come off them eventually, but they probably won't have, like, that much trouble staying in power um, for a while since. So, like, with that in mind, and kind of looking into the future, um, once you have, like, you know, if the union movement does continue to grow, and once you've got uh, a bit more power, and once you've kind of, like, once you have more strength, what do you see, what would you like to do with that strength? Like, in like looking into like the future of the New Zealand union movement, what would be some of your goals? Like once you've built up enough power to kind of like raise your demands? Um, yeah, and I, I, I don't know, like it's, it's kind of been like a strange, it's been a strange political situation and it's been really unpredictable, not least for COVID stuff, uh, for this sort of sudden change of government that was unexpected. Um, and I think the position on the left, it's almost making me a syndicalist um, in the sense of um, the experience has been that political leadership and has been all over the place. Um, but what we've seen when working people get together to rock shit up is that you you win, not always universally and not every everything, but like you can win. Um, and so I think the lesson really is like at some point we'll, if the left keeps growing and, and fighting and, and building for stuff that we, you'll hit the straps and there would be some pushback at some point. Um, but we haven't hit that yet. And I don't know where that is. Um, and it's exciting to sort of think about um, what we could do. Um, and so I think it's just step after step, you know, um, wages, uh, housing stuff needs to be done. I think the houses need to, uh, the union movement needs to be more proactive on, on housing stuff because at the moment, even when we get good wage increases, um, that's just getting eaten up by um, asshole landlords. Um, so, um, yeah, it's it's a, it's an interesting dynamic, and yeah, I think just keep pushing until we hit those those um, those barriers. And when we do hit those limits, then that'll be an interesting political discussion to sort of see if where that um would go that's kind of the question like yeah like do you reckon the union should be pushing for like uh like a really big social housing project say like that's because that's one of the things we always talk about here is like the um queensland the greens kind of build a million social homes policy right do you think there's some of these like i uh, and like given that the labor party while they're not as bad as they could be does lack ambition do you think there's some of these like really big social policies that um, like would really kind of transform the political economy of New Zealand and really rebalance things in favour of workers that like um, you'd like to see happen? Like if you were, if I made you like the king of New Zealand, like tomorrow, what would, what would like, what's the first thing you'd do? Well, I think in some ways like, it, it, like the government at some point, a government needs to break neoliberalism and get over the, the market, like on housing, Ultimately, that's what's going to, whether it's done now or in 10 years, if it's a private rental market, it's going to stay fucked. 
um, no matter how much you tweak things here or there, like you need to build more, like build a million social homes. And I think in a lot of the pub, the private service, uh, public service now, it's been sort of corporatized, um, or in our union in bus driving, where where it's been sort of this contract model. When you like try and we the the government's created all this nonsense markets that then like compete and try and contract down tweet um, and drive wages down. And at some point that. We just need to say fuck that. No, we're just going to actually nationalise shit and pro like provide it. We have a housing crisis. We're not going to fucking give money to um, halfway housing providers or create more subsidies for um, housing support or um, tweak you know how much what you know rent can go up. We're just going to have state housing and everyone who wants a house, if you can't get one in the private market, we'll give you an affordable one in, in public housing. And that for for bus driving, rather than trying to coax and conjole and create you know things for bus companies to um which are already getting paid public money to pay workers right by just sort of creating the right uh regulatory framework just like just say fuck it we pay for it um we're gonna have a public service we need more buses we need you know people to be paid well to do it so we'll just fucking do that uh, like i think that's the the thing that needs to be broken is like kill the fucking market kill capitalism it'll all be good hell yeah <laughs> That's um, a great uh, wrap up. <laughs> yeah, so good. Um, I was, I guess, I it was too good, and I almost want to end it there. But I wanted to ask, like, what, like, what are the actions, and like, what are the coalitions of various unions, and like, how do they leverage the power to make that happen? And is there a like, is there a like an outside body that could take up those demands and kind of articulate it? Like, how does, like, how will that happen? Like, how how will you destroy capitalism in New Zealand in about twenty years? <laughs> Or like more, like more specifically, just like nationalize the bus companies. This is something that's perhaps more achievable in twenty years. Well, you know, like Porque no los dos. Um, yeah, I think, I think that the, the in some ways, I think the the key component part of that will be developing a culture of militancy at a, a rank and file sort of level. Um, that we need more engaged. I think too irrespective of the quality or the of the of union leadership you can have someone who's um you know bland and been around for 100 years and haven't done much or you can have someone who's um coming on um foreign podcasts to wax lyrical or whatever but you you, you need we're going to need to build a better culture of of real ownership of our unions and, and pushing the limits um and a, and a culture of being confident to sort of not just accept the the frameworks as they exist but accept uh, you know push for the frameworks we need um, I feel like maybe that's a bit of a roundabout going over, but I, I think that's the, the thing that I genuinely believe that we, and when, in my experience, when people, and for activists, I suppose, for those who are on the political left who might listen to this, um, there's a thirst for that and for people that have that sort of, um, at least in New Zealand, there's a, a thirst for people who are willing to um, show some leadership and say, fuck it, let's, let's try something new and, and go further. Um, if you talk to your workmates and stuff and say, let's, if you're an ununionized site and say, let's, let's join a union, let's give it a crack. There are people out there who will say, you know what, fuck it, let's do it. Um, let's, let's try something new or within unions that if you, you know, um, can push for things that the, the time is flowing with, with people of the left and socialists are the ones who have the answers. You can't just sort of repackage the old sort of stuff. It, it doesn't work. Um, yeah. That's a, yeah, great spot to, to end it on, unless anyone else has any more questions. No, that's absolutely perfect. I'm so excited. I, I love it because it's really exciting seeing what I think we lack in power. I think we're, in, in Australia, at least, I think the Queensland Greens are some of the better organised and more coherent political like movers and shakers going around. But where we're starting to come up against is that, that point where well, it looks like we will be taking some significant electoral power in the next little while. Where where can we build? Like, how how can we associate with power in the in the real economy? And that's obviously through the union movement. So it's really exciting talking to people from a, from a union movement that is starting to exercise and starting to you know to to do those bicep curls and and feel itself growing stronger and stronger every day. Modestly, but but real. Hell yeah. Well, I should introduce myself. I was Declan. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Bye. Oh, yeah, we totally forgot to do that. <laughs> I'm Joe. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> I've been Matt. Bye. Um, ben, thanks again for coming on. Um, 
uh, is there anywhere where listeners can keep up with what's going on in New Zealand or like do you have a public Twitter account you'd like to share or anything you'd like to put out there to the world? Oh yeah, I'm on I'm on Twitter. I am Solidarity Ben or at Como Ben uh, on Twitter. Um, you probably won't follow me because you're mostly going to be Australians and Australians don't ultimately care about New Zealand. So this will just get memory hold, but you know, actually I'm just going to delete this entire episode. I can't, don't know what you're thinking. Um, <laughs> but thanks uh, again. Yeah. No, this whole thing has been a cruel prank. Like this whole episode is, we're going to just like, we're just doing this to laugh at you. This is just the underarm bowling incident all over again. <laughs> Precisely. Um, then there's a, there's a classic joke in New Zealand, which is just like, and let me see if I can remember this because I'm Australian, so I'm slow, but it's something like every Australian that moves to New Zealand, uh, uh, yes, raises the average IQ of both Yeah, of both every, time countries. A New, every time someone from New Zealand moves to Australia, it raises the IQ of both countries. Yeah, that's the one. That's beautiful. Yeah. That rules. Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful and wholly correct sentiment. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Thanks again, Ben. <laughs> Thanks. Cheers. No worries.